Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glasgow at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm coming to you from the great ocean state of Rhode Island, and joining me from Pennsylvania is our co-host, Susan Wachter. Hello, Susan. Good morning, Bill. Great to have you. And here's an interesting fiscal fact for you, Susan. Here in Rhode Island, residents can get up to $1,000 in credit from the state for purchasing an e-bike, of all things. It's great for the environment and great for health. What's not to like? And I'm not just bringing this up because it's kind of cool. Actually, the Rhode Island bike credit illustrates something important about state fiscal health at this very junction. Most states are still very, very flush from federal stimulus and COVID aid. But how long can this go on? To be sure, Congress and the White House recently cut a deal to raise the federal debt ceiling and avoid a crippling default. But hurdles to continued federal aid to states and to cities and counties and schools there's still very much on the table. Our expert panel will dissect this critical issue in a moment, but first this word. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the special briefing podcast. As always, we've taken your questions in advance and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, special briefing is made possible with the generous support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors and the Century Foundation. Our thanks to you all. And now let's turn to our panel, the main event. From Apollo Global Management, please welcome Chief Economist Torsten Sluck for the big picture on where America is headed. Recession, hard landing, slow session, thanks Mark Sandy for that word, or maybe another path. Then to get the lowdown on that trillion dollars that Congress dishes out to states and localities each year, we'll turn to the person who knows the story better than anyone, Marsha Howard, of federal funds information for states. From the Wall Street Journal White House team comes my old friend and colleague, Andy Linsky, to discuss whether there may be more compromises or not as the fall spending bills take shape. And finally, for the view from the $4 trillion municipal finance market, we'll hear from city's head of muni strategy, Vikram Rai, and municipal market analytics guru, Matt Fabian. Welcome to you all. And now to get the discussion in motion, it's my pleasure to hand the mic to Susan Walker. Susan, well, it's all yours. thank you so much, Bill. And we've got a fabulous panel and really interesting questions ahead. So we will start with Torsten Slog, who is the chief economist at Apollo Global Management and our in-house market guru. Please take it away, Torsten. Thank you. And thanks so much, Susan. Thanks, Bill, uh, for having me. And this is, of course, a very important topic, in particular, again, a day after the Federal Reserve decided to signal that interest rates need to go up much further. But let me just try to organize the conversation about where the economy is at the moment by talking about three different things. First, I'll talk about inflation. Then I'll talk about recession. And then finally, I'll talk about what just happened with the debt ceiling and what that means for financial markets and what it means for the broader economic outlook. So looking first at inflation, the problem is that during the pandemic, 
inflation went up a lot in the beginning, mainly because of inflation in goods. We were all sitting at home, ordering a lot of stuff online that couldn't be delivered because of supply chains. And the result was that goods inflation went up to levels that we hadn't seen in many decades. It peaked at around 10% year over year. And now goods inflation has basically come back down to where it was before the pandemic. So the initial stages of why inflation went up was because of the pandemic and all the associated reasons that were coming with that, namely that the goods sector was putting a lot of upward pressure on prices of things that were just a lot harder to deliver because of supply chain problems. Now, fast forward to today, and this was also what Jay Powell spoke about yesterday. Now we still have inflation. Initially, the Fed said, well, this goods inflation and this supply chain problem is only temporary. So let's not worry too much about this. This is transitory. This will go away. The problem is that today we now still have inflation, but that's no longer in goods. That's now in services. And remember that goods makes up 20% of GDP and services makes up 80% of GDP. And why are we seeing inflation in services? Because services is driven very much by a significant amount of excess savings that households had and accumulated during the pandemic. In very round numbers, during the pandemic, households accumulated roughly $2 trillion more in savings than what they would otherwise have done if we had not had the pandemic. So what does that mean? That means that households got a lot of extra money because we were sitting at home and we could not travel on airplanes. We could not go to restaurants. We could not stay at hotels. We could not go to sporting events or concerts or go to Broadway shows. And as a result of that, savings in the economy accumulated. And adding on top of that, stimulus checks, unemployment benefits, PPP loans, childcare tax credit, the amount of savings that were left and still today are left after the pandemic was very substantial. But for the last uh, 18 months, households have now been trying to burn through that savings. But we've only burned through in round numbers a trillion of those two trillion. So that means that we roughly still have about a trillion dollars left in excess savings that are being spent on booking summer vacations, on going to sporting events, on going to concerts, basically spending in particular on services. So a very important reason why the service sector is still doing so well is because households in particular still have a significant amount of savings in their checking accounts that they are out there spending. And the final point on this is, of course, you might now ask, well, how long time is this going to continue? Well, the San Francisco Federal Reserve just published a paper three weeks ago where they said, well, this excess stock of savings that's left that people are spending as we speak will at least last until the end of this year. So this is telling you from a muni and from a market perspective that rates, and this is what Jay Powell was also saying yesterday, are likely not going to go down, at least not until we get well into 2024. And therefore, the cost of financing for states, the cost of financing for companies, the cost of financing for consumers are going to stay elevated for longer. Because remember, this is the whole idea from the Fed to try to slow the economy down. So the number one and first point I want to make, which is the most important one in the current debate, is that inflation is unfortunately, still quite elevated. What does it mean in terms of numbers? Well, last summer, inflation peaked at nine. Today, inflation is now at five. Remember, the Fed has been mandated by Congress to get inflation down to two. So it was easy, quote unquote, to get from nine down to five. 
That was a low-hanging fruit of straightening out the supply chains, but now comes the hard work of getting from five down to two. And as Jay Powell also said yesterday, that we have been at five for roughly the last six months. So we're not just we're simply just not moving down towards two. And that's the number one worry, namely that the Fed has a lot more to do. And therefore, the Fed is just not done fighting inflation. And therefore, interest rates are going to stay elevated for at least the next six months and for the end of this year, and probably more likely also well into next year. What does that then mean to my second point about recession? What does that mean for the economy? Well, obviously, there's a very important debate about can you get inflation down from five to two without generating a recession? And there's a lot of different views. Most of those center around a debate about, well, how much of inflation was supply and how much was demand? There are different camps. Uh, several Fed working papers have also quantified how much was supply and how much was demand. They generally find that su supply did play a very significant role initially and demand plays a very significant role today. So some of the more recent papers have found a 50-50 split telling you that demand was still important. And therefore, from a Fed perspective, that some demand destruction is likely to be needed to get inflation to come down. And with that comes, therefore, the risk, and this is why the recession outlook is important, that the consensus today, and this is highly unusual, is telling you that we will have a recession you very, very rarely hear the consensus calling for a recession, but the consensus is very convinced, and we agree with that, that a recession is coming and is needed to get inflation to come down. So we get this bad combination of high interest rates and low earnings growth, and therefore, from a tax and state perspective, high interest rates and lower tax revenue. And that's, of course, a bad situation for states that we're going into over the next six to nine months, because that's going to hurt both corporates, consumers, and ultimately, of course, also states. Finally, if someone from the Fed were on this call, they would probably say, but this is the whole idea. We're trying to slow the economy down. That happens to have a transmission channel that goes through different mechanisms. But one very important mechanism is indeed that interest rates are high and earnings, and in this case, tax revenue will be lower. And finally, and very briefly, the last and third point I wanted to make, namely on what just happened with the debt ceiling. The critical thing to be aware of is that, as we all know, the Treasury General Account, meaning the Treasury's checking account with the Fed, basically ran down to dangerously close to zero. In other words, the U.S. government basically had very little money left just before the debt ceiling deal was signed. So now the government has to replenish or refill the checking account that they have with the Fed. And if you both need to issue treasuries to refill the Treasury General Account, and on top of that, you have a regular budget deficit, which is roughly in round numbers of roughly around 100 billion every month. And on top of that, the Fed is doing QT, meaning essentially selling treasuries of roughly around $60 billion every month. That means that in very plain English, the supply of treasuries is going to go up quite a lot in the next several months. And that raises some issues about demand for treasuries. It also raises some important issues. I know Vikram will probably talk about this later in terms of demand from uni debt. But the bottom line is that this episode we just went through from a market perspective has the main implication that the supply of treasuries in the next several months is going to be very, very significant and at levels that we have not seen before ever in U.S. histories. And therefore, it's going to test the limit of this very broad argument that the U.S. is a reserve currency. There will always be demand for U.S. treasuries. And the question is whether there will be some bumps on the road in that process of replenishing the Treasury General account and at the same time also financing the deficit and also doing QT. So just in summary, in one sentence, we worry about inflation that is still elevated. We worry about associated with that 
recession risks are also here and potentially could be coming over the next several quarters. At least that's what the consensus is saying. And the third and final thing we worry about, and that is important for this conversation, is that the supply of treasuries is going to be very significant over the coming six months ahead of us. So with that, Susan, let me turn it back to you. That was fabulous. What an incredibly good summary of worries ahead, despite the fact of solving the debt ceiling. And we'll hear from Matt and Vikram on their thoughts on the implications uh, for the muni market. But certainly the question of the volatility and higher rates going ahead simply because of the new supply is on the order of addressing. But before we get to the more the continuation of the market implications for Muni, we will now hear from Marsha Howard. And Marsha is the executive director of the Federal Funds Information for States, which is a source of all things on how Congress is allocating money to states. So that is very apropos of the moment and of the deal and potential implications going forward. So, Marsha, please, your comments. Thank you, Susan. Good morning, and thank you for having me. A week ago, I was prepared to sit here and tell you and your listeners that the debt limit deal, which is called the Fiscal Responsibility Act, had paved the way for what was likely to be a pretty smooth appropriation season on Capitol Hill. Uh, I no longer feel confident that that's the case, and and I'll explain that as, as I move along. But in the biggest picture, the debt limit deal provides $1.5 trillion in deficit reduction over 10 years, and $1.3 trillion of that is achieved through discretionary spending caps. Now, these discretionary spending caps are important to states for a couple of reasons. Most state grant programs are discretionary programs. About 80% of the grant programs that flow to states are discretionary grant programs. So they would be affected by discretionary spending caps. However, about 80% of the funding states get through those grant programs is mandatory, which is to say outside of these caps. So while the caps will apply to the majority of programs, they will not apply to the majority of funding. And of course, Medicaid is the elephant in that room, uh, which alone accounts for you know, about 60% of federal grants to, to state government and are outside of this agreement. So you know, that's the, a big thing is that the state, the caps will hit many programs, but of limited dollar value. Now, looking at the agreement, there are two components. One is the caps, and I'm gonna circle back to those. The other was a clawback of COVID assistance that was provided in six COVID relief bills. And this had states very concerned that the federal government was gonna be coming in and clawing back monies they hadn't yet spent from some of those large relief packages and programs. But the clawback applies only to unobligated funds, unobligated at the federal level. And it turns out that most of the large grant programs that went to states have already been obligated. So they're safe. There were really only two that we could identify that seemed to pose a a, a real impact on states. One is in the highway program where there was a, a clawback of some fiscal year 2021 highway dollars. And the other was in the Department of Labor, where a billion-dollar clawback will reduce some of the money that that department has available. But if you think in the schemes of 
trillions of dollars of assistance that flow to state and local governments through the course of COVID. These are really fairly minor clawbacks. And on the highway side, since there was wind that this was going to be in the final agreement, states scrambled to start getting those funds obligated. So even though the highway um, clawback rescission was estimated at about $2.2 billion, we understand that states have been so actively putting in their requests for that funding that that uh, clawback rescission will be much smaller than that by the time it actually takes effect. So the clawback seemed like it was a pretty benign feature. And then the second piece was these caps. And the caps are significant, except there were side deals made. And the side deals made it so that really you could get through the appropriations process with roughly level funding for the coming year, fiscal year 2024, as what is in place right now. And while level funding, of course, is a cut in real terms because of inflation, it is, it's something states are accustomed to. For many years, they've lived under budget agreements. They've seen discretionary spending not increase at very rapid rates. What's happened in the last week that changes our view of all of this is that the House Republicans, a faction of the House Republicans has come in and said, no, we're not going to live with the discretionary caps and the side deals that were made in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Instead, we're going to appropriate at fiscal year 2022 levels, which is a rather substantial cut from 2023. So the House is going to try to move these bills at the lower levels. The Senate presumably will move bills at the levels agreed to in the debt limit deal. They will have to go to conference. There are different incentives for the House and the Senate, and there are also incentives in the legislation to get the thing wrapped up by the end of the calendar year. Because if there's a continuing resolution in place, on January 1, then that continuing resolution gets shaved back by a percent below current year levels. So there's all these incentives built in, but there's also political incentives that work in different directions for different factions. So while we believed that the original legislation paved the way for a very smooth process with incentives to get things done, now we've come to believe that recent developments have un raveled that agreement a little bit and that the the months ahead are going to be very perilous, complicated, but politically fraught. And so, you know, we're fastening our seatbelts and um, looking for what's going to happen as the appropriation process ramps up. Thanks, Marcia. This is like watching 12-dimensional chess, I, re I realize. And uh, I appreciate this, uh, your, your analysis, and we'll get back to this shortly. Uh, but first, this is a reminder, you're tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. The archive version of this and all past special briefings can be found on our websites or on the special briefing podcast. And now let's welcome Annie Linsky. So Annie, can we look for more fiscal deals between Joe Biden, Kevin McCarthy? Marsha just said she's she's a, a bit less hopeful, to say the least, about the, uh, the fall appropriations season. Or will we see another government shutdown, sequestration, something like that, just as the 2024 congressional and presidential campaigns get really hot? Um, well, thank you. Thank you for the question. Thank you for having me here. It's just, it's always such a treat to do this. 
Look, I, um, I, <laughs> at my office at the journal, I do keep a crystal ball right next to my desk um, for the, for this very reason. Um, it's, it is, it's been very hard to predict, right? I think one of the things that we have learned in the last few months is uh, just how difficult, Kevin, how the newness, these are new players and they're, they're working together for the first time. The debt ceiling deal was much smoother than many of us expected. Uh, yesterday is the day that would have been the default day had had um, that deal not come together. And it was marked on a lot of reporters' calendars in Washington. And quite frankly, it was marked on a lot of uh, White House officials' calendars too. I was at an event last night where we were sort of talking about whether we should all be celebrating a little bit because we were not a reporter celebrating because we were not working all hours to cover a default. And um, the administration was obviously happy to um, not have that situation. Um, so, but I think it's very hard to know if there can be a deal going forward. But what, what did happen is muscles were exercised that we did not really know existed. Um, Biden's promise when he was elected president was that he could work with Republicans. He could make Washington work. He showed in his first year or first two years that he could make deals. Uh, he passed a gu gun legislation on a bipartisan vote, which is First time that had happened in 30 years. There was a bipartisan legislation on China. There was a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And these measures passed when Democrats controlled both chambers. But it did show that Biden was able to play this role of a deal maker that he promised that he could. Fast forward to January, there was a lot of skepticism, not necessarily about Biden, but whether McCarthy could play that role as that opposite role of a deal maker, kind of a deal, a role that um, McConnell had previously played with Joe Biden. I mean, the debt ceiling surprised a lot of people that it was possible. I think it's absolutely right that the appropriations process is going to create another, you know, it's another friction point. I, I think it's always going to, it was always going to be hard. You know, I, I think the administration has looked at it as we've sort of kicked the can down the road a few months and there's going to be another blow up. But a blow up over a government shutdown is very different than a blow up over the potential meltdown of the global economic order, which is what at the Wall Street Journal, we were all staring at for a few weeks. And so I don't, I think that just the stakes are a lot lower, even if there's going to be squabbling and if there, and I don't, I also don't think the administration, I don't think they will mind that much if there are some cuts. I think they want to, they, they wanted to avoid the absolute disaster, which they did do. And I think there's going to be a little bit room, a little bit of, a little bit more room in the appropriations process for negotiations from the administration side. Um, but I also want to touch on there are a few other just major problems facing the administration that will manifest themselves in kind of interesting ways. And one that has been kind of under the radar is there are a number of senators right now who are holding up nominees to all agencies, which is sort of a new phenomenon. You have Tommy Tuberville as holding up all military nominees. J.D. Vance just announced he is holding up all DOJ nominees. These are two Republican senators, but you know this is a bipartisan issue. Um, Joe Manchin is holding up all EPA nominees. Um, Senator Sanders is holding up all nominees, the all health related nominees. So there is this 
even though there have been some bipartisan muscles flexed in the last you know few weeks really that we didn't know exist there's also this kind of fraying of the administration and congress when you look at these nominees which these are a lot of people that most americans have never heard of but they do play really important kind of day-to-day roles in making government work smoothly so it's just it, that is something to flag and and to watch for and the other the final thing that i would say is there are a few sort of must-pass pieces of legislation in the future where you could see these, you know, interesting groups of people, you know, interesting coalitions coming together for deals. And they include an FIA reauthorization, farm bill reauthorization. And so you're already seeing some bipartisan group, some, some members forming sort of mini coalitions to push what they want in these pieces of legislation. So there is an expectation that those could move. And then there's also bipartisan interest in China. And so I think that's another area where you'll see a lot of, um, you know, this is a a train that could move through Congress if it's related to China. And so you'll begin to see things attaching itself to that. And, And then I guess you just can't completely divorce any of these processes from the larger issue that will soon begin to dominate in Washington, which is the president's reelection campaign. And that, in a way, is kicking off in on on Saturday the president is going to be in Philadelphia for his first political rally um it's not his first campaign rally it's somehow there's a difference um but it's a rally hosted by a number of unions um the AFL-CIO this week the Wall Street Journal um, had a scoop that the AFL-CIO is endorsing Biden the, the earliest time the federation has ever endorsed a president so you know as you kind of move into this more campaign season, the president's eyes are going to be sort of not on Capitol Hill as much and more out to the rest of the country. Well, thanks. If uh, if we were talking about 12-dimensional chess, uh, now we're talking about 200-D chess or, or, or worse. Uh, so let's see how the markets are, are synthesizing this. We're going to first talk to, to Vikram Rai, frequent uh, frequent guest on these mics, and, that Matt, and then Matt Fabian. There's a lot to digest here that, that everybody so far has given us on the economic outlook and the political outlook and the the strains the, the strains within Congress and between Congress and the White House. So, so Vikram, how do you translate this into, uh, in, into the market that really greases the wheels for states and localities, especially as regards infrastructure? Uh, you know, give us your take. Thank you, Bill. I hope you can hear me well. So, Perfect. You see, each time the, the debt ceiling crisis rears its ugly head, I'm surprised that I'm always, I'm so gullible that we're taken in, taken in by this cry-wolf call. But this time I was genuinely worried because it seemed like, you know, we were really on the verge of a default. See, this, this process, this drama is going to play out again in 2025. And I was really hoping this time that we... Like Annie said, that the debt ceiling deal went through a little more smoothly than we expected. And I was almost hoping that the president used something like the 14th Amendment so that the Supreme Court has to address this issue and they will settle it once and for all. And we don't have to play this drama out every two years. And now it will happen in 2025. And the next fight, unfortunately, is going to be about, about health care. So Medicare, Medicaid. CHIP and ACA, as you know, they make up about 25% of all spending. And these are big ticket items, but 
just because they're big ticket items does not mean that they're gratuitous. They are very important. And we know that the, the state of the US healthcare system is eroding. So that worries me, that if there are going to be cuts in any shape or form, and then you, you speak of uh, the grants that are, that are made to state and local governments. So yes, you know, depending on which you use, about one and a half trillion grants go to state and local governments. But here too, my worry is that if you look at the net federal funding per resident, the net federal funding per resident. So it is the high tax states that have the lowest net federal funding per resident. So New Jersey, for instance, I think it's net negative to about, I think it's net negative by about $2,200. Then you have Massachusetts, net negative by $2,300. New York, North Dakota, Illinois. Now these states, supposing they were to receive less in grants going forward, how will they make up for it? They will make up for it by raising taxes. Now, these are already high tax states. So California is one of the highest tax states. California, well, fortunately for now, their net federal funding per, per resident is about $12. But the states that will hurt is Illinois, for instance. Illinois is, is negative 364, I believe. So can these states, which are already losing population due to out-migration out and Taxes are to be blamed for it if if most stats are to be believed. So can they afford to raise taxes? I don't believe so. So that is one of my worries, that if there, if there are going to be cuts to state and local governments, the states that can afford out-migration the least, the states that can afford to raise taxes the least, will, will face the brunt of it. Now, besides that, there are, you know, I have other worries where the municipal market is concerned. So I think the biggest problem that we are facing in the market, and yes, the debt ceiling crisis was something that worried me. And uh, I, I have read canned arguments about how if US were to default, municipal debt would not be affected because we have our own dedicated revenue stream. And I don't believe that for one second because something like a US debt default would usher in a very dark era of policy responsibility. And if you remember, Illinois Geo was on the verge of speculative grade some time ago. New Jersey was just one notch above it. And then, you know, we had Governor Spritzker, Governor Murphy. They worked hard to get the respective geos upgraded. And we applaud them for that because they didn't want their state geos to be the only ones in speculative grade territory. But once the U.S. does something like a default, even a technical default, it will set a very, very unhealthy precedent because if the federal debt can default, why can't state debt? Why can't local debt? So it'll set a very unhealthy precedent for political negotiations at the state and local government level. And it will be catastrophic for state and local debt. So I hope we never have to see this drama again. And I hope we never have to witness this kind of childish brinkmanship again, but I'm afraid we will. But like I said, besides this, the other worry that I have about the market is that we are suffering from a very, very concentrated buyer base. So it's always feast and famine. So the largest buyers of municipal debt, retail, right? is retail. And retail will buy directly or they'll buy through mutual funds. And then you have banks and you have insurance companies. Banks, unfortunately, because of the crisis, they will be reducing their footprint in munis. And insurance companies are doing the same. It makes sense to buy tax exempt debt when you have profits. And because of all the natural disasters that are occurring, Insurance companies are generally under more duress, where profits are concerned, so it makes less sense to buy 
tax exempted. So what does that mean? That we have become more reliant on retail. And that, unfortunately, is not a good sign for immunity because retail is fickle. And I know, I, I'm a part of retail. So I am watching, I and mean, retail is watching the same news as we are. So they get spooked easily. And so state and local governments, they will be exposed to the shifting sentiment of, of, of retail investors, and they get spooked easily. Then the second thing is that you have returns, right? So when I say returns, so munis have returned about 2.2% year to date. Annualized is about 4.5%. Compare that to NASDAQ, which is up 40% or 38%. S&P, which is up 16%. Right? Even on a tax-adjusted basis, the risk-reward metrics for munis don't make sense. So for munis to become more attractive, they'll have to cheapen more, which does not bode well for state and local governments. And then the other, other problem, obviously, is that you know we have... So, so we are reliant to retail. Retail, unfortunately, is not investing in munis wholeheartedly, and that's why mutual fund flows are negative. And that is putting pressure on markets. So my biggest worry for the muni investor is volatility. And it's not like we don't have enough worries, right? So the debt ceiling only added another dimension of worries to the muni market. But going forward, given what is happening with the buyer base, I remain worried that we are not going the right direction and the muni investor will have to contend with tremendous volatility and so will the issuers, right? And if we go into a recession, then that's the, yes, it's true that muni revenues are generally a little more resilient, but if you go into a recession, that's the time when they need access to capital markets most and they need funding at attractive rates. But if we are still, subjected to a very concentrated buyer base that is very fickle, where investment is concerned, that will put pressure on state and local governments. So I can ramble on, uh, Bill, but back to you. Thank you, Vikraman. It's, it's not rambling along. And for those of you who are not familiar with the term GEO, that means general obligation uh, for states and localities and school districts. That's the, that's the supposedly the gold standard will, will we will pledge our full faith in credit toward repayment of this uh, of this bond. Uh, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. In very very rare occasions, but I just want you all to know the, the acronym. So Matt, this is Vikram. Doesn't paint a particularly bright future for the for the market for structural reasons and political reasons. G give us your take. Oh sure. Well, so I it is hard to disagree with uh, a lot of what most of what. Maybe all of what Vikram has said. I think that the expectation that the the federal um, uh, debt ceiling cap will uh, e it either is a symptom of or it will encourage a less sort of uh, predictable federal funding, federal budget uh, standard going forward, and that just adds to the overall increasingly volatile conditions for state and local governments and for state and local governments as they borrow money going forward. So the debt ceiling resolution seemed to be fairly benign in the short term, right? Assuming that, you know, that it doesn't lead to a federal government shutdown with sort of this, you know, with the knock-on conditions and similar, it could have been much worse for state and local governments. So that's a good thing. And that helps to an extent, you know, what state and local governments are doing now is harboring resources for the future, right? They are 
they are generally sitting on more revenue and more cash and more uh, and that gives them more flexibility with how they spend and what they do with the money and so we're seeing this you know really an exceptionally strong uh, credit quality among traditional governments state and local governments general obligation bond borrowers and similar than we have in you know a very very long time but things get worse right we know that the federal government will as illustrated by the debt ceiling crisis, it will be increasingly difficult for them to downstream money to states. And when they downstream less money to states, that means that the, either the states pick up the responsibility or the states downstream those costs to the locals or to individuals, right? Uh, either taxpayers or service recipients themselves, right? So that, you know, and that's sort of, if you think about what the federal government really does, the federal budget deficit is really stimulus, right? We talk a lot about how the Federal Reserve, you know, has, you know, stimulates the economy or the opposite through its low interest rates. But the federal government through spending borrowed money is really one giant stimulus machine, or so it has become. So any attempt to slow that down, either through trimming spending or raising taxes to pay for the spending, you know, will have detriment to economic growth broadly, and in particular for some regions. So you have to assume this slowing backdrop of economic growth driven theoretically at least, by the federal government, by sort of a more organic slowing of economic growth. And then the challenges related to climate change and how that is going to force, you know, substantially more spending. You know, all these just just create volatility in the longer term. They weigh on credit quality and they create um, more, like we say at MMA, more heterogeneous outcomes, more heterogeneous credit outcomes, heterogeneous um, bond performance outcomes, you know, lending outcomes. Vikram is absolutely spot on that 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 we have a thin pool of lenders at current prices um and that the thinness means that um in order to uh, restore right or in order to get through any potential hiccups in sort of the flow of capital from lenders to borrowers we'll take higher interest rates uh, we'll take higher costs that's probably the future i think that we need to think about so i'll just wrap it up with that saying that in general this a lot of these problems for the state and local sector are solved by higher interest rates um, and are solved by probably more borrowing to address losses of, of matching funding from the federal government and to address their own sort of increasing costs related to climate change. And so that puts pressure on state and local governments to rethink how they're paying for their debt, how they're paying for their budget. You know, a much more, we think, you know, and we, we're, we're thinking hard now about the future of, of tax collections and thinking about how governments define taxes, segregate taxes, you know, maybe this, you know, the differentiation between something like sales tax and income tax or water fees or or tolls over a bridge, maybe those aren't so different and need to be thought of much more holistically in the future to address this volatility and higher cost basis. Uh, okay, I'll sign off there. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Matt. Before I hand this off to Susan, I just have one follow-up question for, for Vikram and Matt, because I know you, you both follow this issue, which is Vikram talks about healthcare spending. Marshall talked about healthcare spending. The nonprofit hospital sector is where this plays out. And I, I recall, Matt, you, you, you saying before we, we started, that's the one area where you're seeing some stress. Yeah, no, we have. Um, so we track muni bonds who are disclosed, muni borrowers who are disclosing problems, either a payment default or a technical default. This year, over $9 billion of, of hospital debt has disclosed some kind of technical default. That is 
far and away more than any full year total in the past as far as just hospital debt. It's 2023, because of this, 2023 is nearly at the level of the great financial crisis for dollar amount of borrowers disclosing financial problems. No, not, I mean, a few have defaulted, but it is mostly just a message of, you know, pervasive and continuing trouble, distress with not with not not for profit healthcare. So it's it is absolutely a sector that the investors are watching very very closely. Being you know, if there is you know the problem that we always get, um, um, uh, that we always have in our sector is a is 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 a lack of discipline or whatever you want to say. It's starting in the it hasn't absolutely hasn't become difficult for those hospitals to raise money but it's starting that way and it's a it's an interesting dynamic i'll turn to you vikram thank you matt i, I couldn't agree more and it, i i find this topic heartrending because uh, like you said we are seeing defaults in the sector and unfortunately the healthcare sector the industry is is run like say the airline industry that we ne- we don't have any spare capacity and that leaves us completely flat-footed when the next pandemic, when the next health crisis hits. So I believe over the last five years, 674 rural hospitals have shut down. And when a rural hospital shuts down, it's not like the larger hospital can just take over that care because a larger hospital is already cro- chronically understaffed. So they run into the law of diminishing returns. So it's not like, okay, the big banks are benefiting because the smaller banks are, are, are losing deposits. No, that kind of dynamic does not play out. So essentially what happens is that, that there's an erosion in the quality of overall healthcare. So the U.S. healthcare system is eroding. Let there be no doubt about that. Now, the this needs to be addressed in a three-pronged fashion. Matt pointed out correctly that the smaller hospitals are struggling. And they a lot of them were able to keep the doors open during the pandemic because they got aid from the federal government. And as that aid winds down, more hospitals will close their doors. So everybody has to do the bit. The policymakers, they need to ensure that there is enough funding available, enough grants available for the smaller hospitals that are struggling because they need to remain open for, to maintain at least some level of quality of health care. Then the issuers, even the smaller hospitals, see, it boggles my mind that some munis are copacetic with, with ESG, right? But hospitals, especially so, because the entire mission of the hospitals, not-for-profit healthcare sector, is the upliftment of the health of the community. So issuers should be marketing their debt as ESG compliant because there's a very large buyer base of debt for ESG compliant debt. And here, investors have to do that bit too. They need to look at the healthcare sector because this offers opportunity and they're looking for ESG compliant debt. This is where they need to look. That's a very interesting perspective. And I know we're going to return to this and I'm in another special briefing. And and Susan, I know you've got a whole bunch of questions queued yes, up. So well, the, take the it key, away. Yeah, thank you. Well, the key question, and we're getting it from several people, including Kevin Wiley of Wiley Logistics Solutions, is uh, is there a better way of dealing with our debt issues going forward? He says, clearly it has become untenable, dangerous, and frankly embarrassing for its citizens. So I think this is for all uh, panelists, but perhaps, Anna, you could weigh in. Are there better ways and what's the um, hopeful, uh, perhaps, perspective on how we might avoid another debt ceiling crisis, as uh, Vikram said, in 2025? 
Yeah, no, I think the way to avoid it is to have Congress change the law that they created in the first place that, you know, requires this debt ceiling dance every few years. Um, It's interesting, President Biden in October was asked if he believed the debt ceiling law should be repealed. He said that would be irresponsible. (laughs) You know, I don't know that he feels the same way. If you look you know, to fast forward to, to today, I think he, he might ha- might have rethought that position. Um, he he made some noises about potentially testing the 14th Amendment. I, I don't know how serious that was um, or whether that was sort of a nod to the left, um, which was really, really pushing hard for him to do that. Um, but there has been some talk in Congress of at least modifying the debt ceiling law so that's not so that they would have to um, rather than vote to increase it, they'd have to vote against increasing it. And, and and that would sort of change the incentive structures a little bit. So you wouldn't end up in this kind of deadlock every 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 few years. And I think the other thing just to keep in mind is. As I was covering this, one of the things that I um, worried about the most was the lawmakers who said increasingly that they didn't think a default would matter and it would just be like a government shutdown. It was kind of the elites saying that this is a disaster, but it wouldn't really, nobody would really notice, or maybe it would be needed and be good for the country. So I think that perspective, um, you know, is one that may cause lawmakers to who are in the center or um you know the centrist lawmakers to kind of incentivize them a little bit to make some changes to that law. Thank you, Annie. Uh, Torsten, do you have views on uh, alternatives to this last minute and then uh, perhaps pushing it down the road, which we seem to be doing as regularly? No, I mean um I, I, as we all agree, uh, this is just uh, from a financial market perspective. This is just something that's uh, I don't know what the right word is, self-inflicted, and something that obviously is creating a lot of volatility. We all spend a lot of time on it. There is, of course, an ongoing saying that uh, if you look at the historical data, the debt ceiling has been lifted a hundred percent of the times. So, if you purely take a statistical approach, you would say, well, if that's the case, then it will always be lifted also in the future. But as we know, and as Annie was also saying. And, and as we discussed earlier, this process here was uh, dangerously more close to, and there could be a lot of arguments for why uh, this um, uh, might not have had the outcome that we ended up with. But but uh, but it is certainly, uh, given how many other things that uh, that we all talk about and that we all worry about, uh, this is uh, this is certainly an issue that uh, if if financial markets didn't have to worry about this, I can safely say we would certainly have a lot less volatility in financial markets. So, so Vikram, you uh, perhaps you want to take a moment to talk about the uh, 14th Amendment that you mentioned you actually had hoped might be tested. Yeah, I had hoped because I I kept hearing the same uh, ludicrous rationalizations that this will just be like a government shutdown and it'll actually enforce discipline and a default would not be such a bad idea. A default would be horrendous. Yeah. Or it'll, like Torsten said, it'll threaten our status as a reserve currency. And remember, the British pound used to be the reserve currency before World War One, and then it's not, right? So it's true that we are the safest debt in the world. And if uh, S&P downgraded U.S. Treasuries and U.S. Treasuries rallied, because essentially what happens is that the entire scale gets reset and the double A becomes a new triple A because then everybody says, okay, if US debt is is double A, then where are the others? But 
but then again, see, ultimately, foreign investors are going to get weary with the, you know, potentially more brushes with default, and they will start ex- beginning to explore other baskets of stable currencies. So this this drama is embarrassing. Right? And like I said, I mean, there there are options. I mean, I, I thought President Biden should look at council bonds. Council bonds don't have a principal payment, so in theory, it's perpetual debt with a very high interest cost. Cost that could have been considered to 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 keep pushing the uh, the debt ceiling. Uh, the 14th Amendment, I think, should be taken seriously. The next time you come to such a crisis, rather than give in or make cuts to health care, employ the 14th Amendment. It'll, the Supreme Court will have to decide. And I want to believe that the Supreme Court, for whatever allegations are leveled at them, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're, they're logical and responsible. And we are not going to they're not going to abnegate our responsibility, so they'll not say that the debt is unconstitutional, so that will settle the matter once and for all. But to expect that Congress in future will act, will behave more maturely, and it'll be a grown-up conversation, and this, this fiasco will not occur again, I think is unrealistic. I'm prepared to see this drama once more in 2025, and it pains me to say that. The debate about lifting the, the debt ceiling does get back to the issue of, of spending and whether whether the United States can continue, uh, whether Congress can continue to to spend and borrow to pay for the spending and then pretend pretend like like there are no consequences. Bill, that's, Bill, though, that's the issue. I think that that's only part of the problem is that we're we are focusing entirely on spending, but the problem I think that this debt crisis identified is that cutting spending reveals or talking about cutting spending has revealed a field of landmines, even for Republicans who got to office to cut spending and find themselves now unable to. It has to be, I mean, the solution, there's only two things, there's spending and there's revenues. And so if the spending can't be cut for political reasons, for equity reasons, for, you know, whatever, then the revenue side needs to be talked about, you know, much more seriously than it has in the past. That that is likely the long-term solution. Whether the revenues come from the federal government or come from state and local governments, that is sort of the future in my in my view of this. If we can't cut spending, we have to raise taxes to pay for that spending. So, so Matt, I just and, one point I'd like to add to that. Our debt per capita is $130,000, right? Our taxes are already sky high. I mean, I, I'm we, have, we are up to our eyeballs in taxes. So I find it, I, mean, I, th- I think the math, I find it hard to believe that raising tax is a solution because this is, I, I don't see how it adds up. How will we pay back $130,000 per capita worth of debt? We're a very creative country. We can figure <laughs> out how to raise taxes. Well, we can push back it. on that just a little bit. The last time the federal budget was balanced was back in 2000. And at that time, tax revenue as a percent of GDP were at 20%. And they're below 20% now. So even if we just, and, and, and the ACA expansion happened after that. So even if we just started by getting back to 20%, we'd be in better shape than we are right now. So Marsha, actually, I have a question which should follow on in terms of state reaction to where we are now. And I, I think uh, Matt said this, and we've heard from others as well, that states are in a good position at this point in terms of rainy day funds, et cetera. But perhaps seeing all this uncertainty going forward, um, do you see, and, and also Matt and others, states being more conservative in their spending plans going forward? 
I think states are sufficiently flush with resources right now, Susan, that they're able to do three things at once. One is raise spending pretty um, significantly. Two is cut taxes in some cases, somewhat significantly. And three is sock away a ton of money <laughs> into rainy day funds. So I think they're, you know, they're kind of hedging their bets in every direction. And for now, uh, their resources are so great that they're able to do that. And I think we'll just have to see what the next couple of years brings. But as I said, since so much of the spending they get from Washington is in mandatory programs, um, you know, the impacts of these federal cuts are going to fall on smaller discretionary programs, but not on the big dollars. Matt and Vikram, do you agree? Do you see spending cuts in the future of states or are they flush and continuing to spend? And not raising taxes. I, I see increasing divergence, um, you know, um, but between the states, you know, some states budgets, even California's budget is over $200 billion now. So it's a, it's a much, it's, it's twice the size of where it was 15 years ago or 10 years ago. So it's, it's much bigger than it was. So even, you know, and many of the state's budgets are just, you know, on, on, you know, larger, much larger than they were even 10 years ago. So even being conservative, now still suggests a bigger role in the lives of their constituents. So yeah, I do think that there's going to be, there is, right, state and local borrowing is down 23% year to date, um, 15% of that, or, or new money projects, roughly about 15%. So there is some, and that's about $25 billion less borrowing this year than there was the year before. So there is some conservative happening, but it's coming from a base where these are just bigger creatures than they were before. And that's uh, likely to continue. Matt, are you concerned in the dynamic that Vikram brought up of this bifurcation of the states that are getting the least help from the federal government are also the states that are potentially less able to raise taxes because of potential migration, such as California, such as Illinois, such as New Jersey? Is this a bifurcation, something that you're concerned about as well? So, so you could think about like a static. So I'm going to disagree a little bit with Vikram. All due respect, I think he's the best. I really do. But just a little, little, just a shade of a difference between me and him here, where if you can think about states taxing capacity as a static number of like, how many dollars do its people have? And how many dollars can the state take from that? That's a thing. But also states that have higher taxes already are better at raising taxes, right? Have already, taxes being too high, to a limit, taxes being too high is a perception by the people. So the states with very low tax rates have the hardest time raising taxes. And states, because they have an anti-tax thing happening, right? A culture of low spending. States where taxes are higher generally have an easier job of it. California has the most debt and California can, can get its people to approve nearly anything for more debt. That's so a really interesting conundrum. Vikram, you want to respond? I see you're no, smiling at this. No, no, <laughs> so, so, no, actually, I, I, I agree with Matt. Uh, no! He, 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 he's right about the sentiment, but I, I do believe that the states also, so look at California, for instance. Their budget went up by almost $100 billion during the pandemic era. And that was, that was catalyzed by a, a lot of one-time grant. Which is which is fading away, so they will have to cut spending, and Governor Newsom will tell you that you know they can only raise taxes so much. They already have the have the highest personal income tax rate in the country, 
And you keep hearing about out-migration. I used to live in California, and Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, he was the governor then. He talked about the inhospitable business environment that California has to offer, and yet California continues to thrive. So, it, yes, it might take time for this to play out. And Matt is right. I live in New Jersey. I complain on my taxes regularly, but I haven't moved as yet. I've lived there for 15 years. But <laughs> he, so he, he's right that, that yes, you know, we, we are maybe uh, we are more resilient to tax raises uh, and we've taken a stride. But then you, these, these out-migration trends are very real. You, we do see New York losing population, Illinois losing population, New Jersey not so much, California losing businesses. So I think yes, you know, if 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 these high tax states, uh, Massachusetts, for instance, if they, if they if they need to raise taxes more to to offset the cuts in federal spending, it will hurt them. It will hurt them. So we have one minute to go, and I would like a quick um, response uh, from Torsten. Do you think the uh, health of the consumer, which you were saying still has a trillion dollars, is going to push off a recession to twenty four? If then. And then uh, I think we do need to wrap up. But yeah, so the the short answer is that the, the consensus does expect a recession in the second half of this year. But uh, but the biggest risk to this view is indeed that it's going to take longer time. We have been crying wolf in financial markets. A recession is coming. Recession is coming for so long, basically since October. So everyone is exhausted with recession calling here. So I do worry a bit that once the recession finally does arrive, that uh, we may all be surprised. Because <laughs> we're not, we're and I think off. we're, and we're probably going to have to leave it at leave it at that. We can continue this discussion uh, over the summer and in the fall, but uh, right now that's it for another special briefing. If you want to contact the panelists and our team, Susan and me, the info is up on your screen right now, and it'll be there on the replays. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you to all of our panelists and our wonderful audience for joining us today. We'll be back on Thursday, July 27th, with another special briefing on the very cloudy future of mass transportation. Thanks also to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to our production team, Graham Dowd, Noah Ritzenberg, Idalis Foster, Steve Klieg, Kate Nicoletti, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.